Well, good evening, everybody. Welcome again to the Neighborhood Church. Welcome again to those of you who are tuning in online now or later. I want to invite you all to join me in the book of Matthew. It's the first book there in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 21. Tomorrow, Sunday, is an important day in the life of the church. It's called Palm Sunday. And we're going to be looking at a familiar to most of us, familiar story that kicks off what the church calls Holy Week. It's the last week of Jesus' earthly life. And we are going to look at his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. So join me in Matthew chapter 21. I'm going to read the first 11 verses. And I'm going to try my very, very best, as John Brunko always reminds me, not to quote or reference Jesus Christ Superstar, because I always think about some of the scenes from the film version of the 1970s, and I was going back through some of my outlines, and I realized every Easter, at Palm Sunday or Easter, I'm going to quote it. And right now, I'm going to try really hard, because my brother and his wife are literally at the Dallas Music Hall watching it as we speak. So I'll let that be enough. I'll get my obligatory Jesus Christ Superstar reference. But this is a killer scene in that movie. But it's even better in Matthew 21. So join me here. When they had come near Jerusalem and had reached Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, just say this, The Lord needs them, and he will send them immediately. This took place to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Look, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, and put their cloaks on them. And he, Jesus, sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road. And others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil or uproar, clamoring, asking, who is this? And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. This is the word of God for the people of God. And we say, thanks be to God. I'd like to pray these words out loud together. They're from the Book of Common Prayer, and it's the opening prayer to Palm Sunday, and it's here on the screen. Can we pray this out loud together? Almighty and ever-living God, in your tender love for the human race, you sent your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, to take upon him our nature and to suffer death upon the cross, giving us the example of his great humility. Mercifully grant that we may walk in the way of his suffering and also share in his resurrection 
through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Hold it right there. Some of you might need to take a picture of this slide and maybe return to this each day throughout this week we call Holy Week as we follow Jesus from the gate of Jerusalem and to the cross. One of my favorite memories of Palm Sunday was when I was growing up in a charismatic Episcopal church in East Dallas. Yes, there's such a thing. Imagine men wearing robes and going down and kneeling for communion, but then every once in a while somebody breaks out in some tongues. But my favorite memory is on Palm Sunday. We would exit the sanctuary and file in and around the sidewalks, and we would see a procession of the acolytes with candles and the kinds of procession they would do every Sunday, but this one was different because everyone had palm branches, the kinds of dried leaf branches that greeted Jesus on this Palm Sunday 2,000 years ago. And the reason I remember it when I was a kid is because somehow or another, the priest would wind up on the roof of one of the Sunday school buildings, and I thought that was bad to the bone because he was talking to us from up there, and we got souvenirs, so I was waving branches that turned into swords with me and my brother. But it's ironic that I remember turning these palm leaves into swords because what we see with Jesus and his entry on this Palm Sunday is the opposite of how another king would have entered that city just days before Jesus. That's what we're going to be talking about in a tale of two different kings. Because when you really see Jesus and the kind of king that he's becoming, we'll do this in just a minute, Becky. Sorry about that. And the kind of kingdom that he's inaugurating and the kind of king that he is becoming, it is so vastly different from anything the world had ever seen. And so the crowds greet him on this Palm Sunday. He's in a parade into the city. And it begs the question, will we keep walking with him? It's one thing to walk with him and Sing Psalm 118, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's one thing to do that this weekend. It's another thing when it's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and he's in the temple, the center point of where he's going to confront the religious leaders and powers that be. It's another thing to follow him those days when he's going toe-to-toe and confronting the powers that be. It's another thing on Thursday to follow him to the upper room and as we looked at last week, see Jesus decrease his status to the point where he would wash the feet of even his betrayer. It's a whole other thing to follow him to the garden after that dinner where he's asking if there's any other way and he's sweating blood. He's so grieved by what lays before him. It's another thing to follow him when the soldiers come with Judas to arrest him. It's another thing in the wee hours of Friday morning that he's tortured and stands trial and eventually by midday gets walked out of the city on the other end of the city 
to go to the cross. So will we keep walking with him? That's the story and the question set before us this time year after year. Because it's easy to sing and it's easy to go collect Easter eggs. It's a whole other thing to take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow Jesus even until the end. We talk about how unlikely of a king he is. But is this unlikely? Or isn't this what Jesus was always doing in confronting and upending the powers and expectations of the world? In our series in Lent, we've seen Jesus week after week show us how we can decrease our stuff, our self, and our status so that we can increase our communion with God. We looked at how Jesus was tempted in the wilderness to, hey, just satisfy your desires. And he says, no, man doesn't live on bread alone. And then we saw how we're invited to potentially just sell everything we have because if we can't give up our stuff, have we really given Jesus our life? Then we looked at how we can give up our self and we can change the center of gravity of our life to put Jesus squarely in the center where his way and his wants become the way to life. And then as I just mentioned before, we see him again in the upper room washing the feet because he did not consider equality with God something to be exploited. So this is a new kind of king and we shouldn't be surprised how his journey is going to end because he's really been doing this his whole life long decreasing so that he might increase the life, love, and communion with God. I hope that's the journey that you've been on this Lent. And wherever you've been and however it's gone in your giving, praying, and fasting, there's no moment but this moment. There's no time like this time. So I hope that you'll journey with him more intentionally this week, even if you broke your fast a few times in the last 40 days. Because what he wants more than our heroic fasting and giving and praying is he wants our hearts and he wants to form us for the sake of the world. And I hope that this Holy Week we can tune in again to the story that gives shape to our lives and a king who's unlike any other king we've ever seen. Which is what this weekend's story is really about. You'll notice a tale of two kings. Pilate was the Roman governor of Judea. He was appointed by the emperor, and this was his region, the region where Jerusalem is, the reason where the Mount of Olives is that we just read about, which was a suburb to the east, the northeast of Jerusalem. He was the one that was charged with keeping the peace and making sure that Rome still ruled the roost, and he did not like the Jewish people. He didn't like the Jewish people so much that he actually didn't really live in Jerusalem where he was supposed to. He lived in Caesarea Maritima, and I don't blame him because Caesarea Maritima, like maritime, was on the sea. So it was over there in the Mediterranean, beautiful seaside, Roman city. But the thing about what's going on when Jesus enters the city is that it was during the Passover festival. Do you remember the Passover from the Exodus in our Old Testament story? 
It is like the story. It's the story of how God liberated and rescued his people from oppression. The oppression of what nation? Egypt. So the reason why Pilate loads up his DVD player for his kids and the trail mix to take a road trip from Caesarea Maritima all the way to Jerusalem was because during the Passover festival, the Liberation Festival, Jerusalem that had a population of about 40,000 people in the day of Jesus, it ballooned up to 200,000 people. Which is why Jesus was probably kicking it in the Mount of Olives or the Kidron Valley because just like when he was born, he could find no room in the Holiday Inn because there were so many people there. And there were so many people celebrating the biggest festival that marked the biggest salvation that their people had ever known. And then Jesus is about to use this time and use this place to show them an even greater salvation at work. So Pilate had to come to Jerusalem for the Passover because this liberation festival, if something was going to go down, it was going to go down then. Because remember, it wasn't Egypt that was ruling over the Jewish people. Now it was Rome. And there was other times in history that during Passover, some guys got bowed up and they were ready to show them what's what. And they were going to try to liberate themselves. I mean, imagine like those cheesy action movies. I've never seen them, but it's like Red Dawn and Olympus Has Fallen. Like imagine that somebody went and took the White House and it's 4th of July or Independence Day, whether they're aliens. And Bill Pullman says, it's our Independence Day. Will Smith was in that. Has he been in the news lately? That movie is greatness and my... 90s self could not get enough of that. It fired me up. So if it was Independence Day back then, who knows? Something is brewing. Something's percolating. This is what's going on here. So Pilate's making his way down with his trail mix and his DVD players, and he's coming from this city in the West. But how does he arrive? Let me tell you how Pilate arrives. Historical data shows that he rode on a war horse because that's what big, important Roman governors did. And he didn't just bring one horse. He brought 600 horses. He had 600 soldiers on horses of their own rolling behind him. There's another untold number of foot soldiers walking along the ranks, and they didn't carry palm branches. They carried swords. And this was all sending a message that says, I don't care what Bill Pullman's speech you heard, don't try anything. Don't even think about it. I think about how years ago, Robert and Kara Vaughn and myself went and visited Russia, our dear friend and partner there. And we arrived during the holiday called Victory Day, and it was on May 9th. And I remember seeing all of this Russian flags and propaganda and images talking about their might and their strength. And it culminates with a parade downtown Moscow 
with tanks and marches and military people. And I thought for a minute, maybe I should show some pictures. And then I thought with the events of the last few weeks, and especially with the bombing of the train station yesterday, it just reeks of tragedy and evil. And I just remember going to one of the elementary schools in their neighborhood and seeing kids do these military marching exercises that each class had put on and as part of the celebration. And then I remember seeing flags waving and I'm asking him, what is all this about? And he's like, man, it's really just to show the world and to prove that we still think we're tough. And it's really kind of silly. And then I also remember when my Russian friend toured Washington, D.C., and he came back to Texas, and I said, hey, how was it? He said, I can just think of one word, power. And I remember being struck by that, and I think it's because I'm an American, and when I see my symbols of power, and I see the military processions, I view it differently from the lens of an outsider, just the way that I probably viewed Victory Day different from when Others were there in Russia. But the truth remains, political skirmishes and political ideologies aside, isn't there always some dude on a war horse? Isn't there always some nation or country that's trying to remake the map and the world using tools like swords and oppression and fear, and opposition? Isn't there always some dude? He may be with a different name and a different country, but isn't there always somebody that comes and telling you that it's for peace and that it's the way things ought to be, but they're using the same weapons? And so what's interesting is, so many of these people in Jerusalem have seen pilots come and go on their war horse. But then here comes Jesus. And if the war horse is the Harley Davidson, the colt is the tricycle. Jesus remembers the words that were written 500 years earlier from Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah 9, and Matthew quoted it for us. Tell the daughter of Zion, look, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. He's saying it's a donkey, but it's also like a baby donkey. And you know when he's writing this? 500 years before Jesus came was at the tail end of the exile. What was the exile? When Jerusalem was burned to the ground and any remaining survivors took their own parade like the Trail of Tears all the way to Babylon and the last true king that they had got his eyes gouged out after they killed his sons in front of him. Second Chronicles 36 and elsewhere. And so Zechariah says, hey, don't worry, Zion. Your king is coming to you. And then what happens is they say, awesome, that sounds lovely. And then they waited 500 years. So Jesus makes this arrangement that he's going to get this baby donkey. And you can imagine that Jesus is riding into the holy city, the city of David, 
Jerusalem on the Liberation Festival, and his feet are dragging in the dirt, except there's not dirt. There's cloaks and branches because he's receiving the royal treatment of God's true anointed king who is coming. And if Pilate rode a Harley, he's on a tricycle, and you got to imagine that Jesus is doing this with a wink and a smile. When I was doing my undergrad, I got a bachelor's in communication studies, but toward the end of my time, my focus was on, you ready for it? Performance art. I had gotten this hack that I realized I could get real college credit, not by writing papers, but by giving performances. So I'd do my best Yoko Ono, and I would just tell the world what's what. And I would just take our culture, and I would perform a scathing critique as only 20-year-olds can do in black box theaters in Denton, Texas. And I got to see that my man Jesus has got some performance art in him. On Palm Sunday, he comes not from the beachside village of Rome in the west. He comes from the suburb across the valley in the east. And they could not have been different processions because instead of soldiers walking with him as he drags his feet on a baby donkey, we have worshipers. And what are they singing? It's the song that they sang during Passover. It's the song that they knew by heart. It's the song that we read earlier, Psalm 118. How many greatest hits came from what Toby read earlier? This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be, and be glad in it. Um, uh, oh, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, save us, O oh God. And here's the thing about these worshipers. This word Hosanna in Aramaic came to be known of a cry of deliverance that Kelly reminded us earlier. Save us, O oh God. But the funny thing about it is that could be given as a thank you prayer or a would you prayer. At the neighborhood church, we love to pray and teach our kids, when you can't think of prayers, just finish this sentence. Lord, thank you for fill in the blank. Lord, would you fill in the blank? The thing about Hosanna, it works in both categories. So Jesus is being met by this galley of worshipers coming alongside him and around him, and some of them are saying, save us, thank you, finally, the Savior's here. And then there's others knelt down in the dirt, in the dust, and they've got their hands in their, uh, on the ground and their head on the ground. And they're saying, save us. We're tired of being oppressed and broken and we're weary and without hope. That Hosanna word is that weird, bittersweet word, which is also why Jesus just didn't ride in with a wink and a smile. Later we'll see in other gospels, he rides in with tears in his eyes because he looks at Jerusalem and says, you've been following the wrong parade way too long. You still think I'm coming here because I brought a sword with me. But all you see here is branches it's a celebration, but it's bittersweet because you don't know how I'm about to liberate you. So where Pilate and this king was about swords and oppression, Jesus has a bittersweet celebration that will end with liberation and they will not just pass through the waters of the Red Sea. He's going to pass through the waters of death itself.
There are some kings that still think we remake the world through war and violence and oppression. And we have this altogether different king with a different idea of liberation that's through sacrificial love and peace that's made not by killing, but by being killed. You want to know one of the ways that I think that Jesus is true is because there is no other world religion or no other God that would make this up. Not one of us would have made up a God that sends his son to ride on a tricycle and be killed instead of killing. One of the reasons I think that God is who he says he is and sent Jesus is because we would have never wanted or invented a God like that. History is not only riddled with some dude on a horse going because it's their God-given right to oppress people. History is also littered with gods made in our own image that says that's the only way you get things done. And the sad reality is there are a lot of Christians that are still following in a very different kind of parade that thinks this is still how we remake the world. Because we're right and we need to fight. And then here's Jesus still wandering in the east side of town with his feet dragging on a colt saying, if you only knew there's another way and there's life and liberation. But it's not going to look like what you expect. So it begs the question, not just what I said earlier, well, we keep walking with him, but it begs these questions as well. Which parade... Are we following? Who are we walking with? There's something about that bittersweet Hosanna that Jesus was never far from people. Rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep. There's something about a kingdom community that is littered with people that gather each and every Saturday, each and every Sunday, with half the room saying, yes, I'm here, God, you're good, and it's been a good week. And then the other half is saying, God, I'm here, I can't believe I made it. Help me get through the next moment. The kingdom community is a community gathered around Jesus who aren't afraid to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep because they look suffering in the face and they don't deny it or delude it. They reckon it and say, save us, O God. And this other question, if we're in his parade and we're walking with other celebrators and weepers, how far are we willing to go? Because it's one thing to read what Jesus says on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. We like what he says when he's confronting the religious leaders. We like when he's sticking it to the man. We like his mantras and his quips that we can put on bumper stickers. But are we willing to follow him to the garden? Are we willing to hear him say, not my will but yours? Are we willing to stay awake with him through the night? Are we willing to put down our sword When we want to rise up and fight against those who would arrest our king? Are we willing to watch and not deny him when he stands trial? Are we willing to go to the foot of the cross and say, this is actually what freedom looks like?
Here's our big idea for the evening. You see, Jesus has a way of upending our expectations. We want a conquering warrior, and what we get is a co-suffering savior. Why? Because what the world needs and knows is suffering and someone to experience it and walk with them through it. And what the world has seen enough of is tanks and missiles killing children and civilians. But we still want to walk in the parade of a conquering warrior and get things done. And we do great damage when we try to get it done in the name of the one who rode on a cult and returned to a people who would deny him. But maybe we get a co-suffering Savior because God cares more about our formation than our expectations. Because we always forget that the road to life and resurrection passes through death and crucifixion. It's like the cave on the way to San Antonio that I always want to stop at. And Amy wants to keep driving. Let's just go to the next Bucky's, and I say, "But, but they they turn off all the lights, and it's and it's dark, and it's fun." And I remind her every year, the road to resurrection always leads through inner space caverns, and we've got to stop. But in all seriousness, it's really, really a more fun road if we can just jump from Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday. And we do ourselves and our lives a disservice if we don't name the reality of the world in which we live that reckons with death and brokenness and pain and that we can dare to believe that where God is on the cross is not far away and distant, but in Christ reconciling the world to himself. I heard a story recently, last Saturday, in fact, I was speaking at a men's prayer breakfast, and I gave my little spiel, and then I sat down, and the gentleman comes up to take prayer requests, and an 81-year-old man says, I wanted to give you an update, and they said, sure, he said, you know, last month and the month before, I asked that uh, y'all would pray for my back, because I can't walk, for some reason, I'm not able to walk anymore. So he said, yes, yes. Well, what's the update? And he says, well, God answered my prayer. And he said, all right, amen. And he said, I went to the Mayo Clinic in Phoenix, and they worked up my labs and my x-rays, and they looked at all these things, and they said, yep, right there. You see that? This last surgery you got did permanent damage, and you'll never walk again. And at this point, I'm saying, I'm sorry, did he just say God answered his prayer? And there is this hush that kind of went over the room because every man, in that, every man in that room prayed that he would be able to walk again. And they prayed that, you know, he would get back to some normalcy and mobility. And he said, no, God answered my prayer because 
All I wanted was an answer and a way forward. And this 81-year-old man sitting down in a wheelchair and had a walker to stabilize, he said, I've got an answer. I'm at peace, so I'm just going to keep going. So after my talk and after we prayed, he, uh, he, he came up to me and he was asking um, if the rock uh, took clothes. I said, yes. He goes, good, because I've been working on my house. And I said, what? He goes, yeah, I've been like painting the baseboard. I said, you can't walk? And I can walk and I haven't painted my baseboards. I've been in my house six months. And he goes, yeah, I'm moving to an assisted living, so does the rock take clothes? Do we take clothes, Toby? We'll take his clothes, amen? And I am hearing this, and I literally stopped, and I said, I want to thank you for sharing what you shared because you taught me that God can still answer prayers when it's not what we wanted or expected. You showed me again that we can revisit the story with our family and our community and say, hey, remember when I asked you to pray for this and we all said Hosanna and we cried out and we cried out? Sometimes we got to do the crucifixion thing. But like Jesus in the garden we can trust that God will bring us through when we say, not my will, but yours. And I just got to imagine that in your life and in the places on your parade, you're saying, save me, save me, save me. And you're looking for the king to come to you as the glorious resurrected Savior, and sometimes He comes to you as the Lamb who was slain. And I just got to believe that that shows us, that forms us, that God doesn't bring all pain into our life. In some mysterious way, God allows it, but Scripture stops just short of saying that He's not responsible for all the sin, death, and destruction, and pain. So God does not bring all all pain into our life. But you know what scripture does says in, say in Romans 8? But God will take all our pain and work it together for good. And I think this is the mystery that Holy Week tells us. After the dust settles and the palm branches are swept away from the parade route, we, we understand that we can make sense of Friday because God does not bring all pain into our life, but he will take all of it and work it together for good. Because there's resurrection on the other side of crucifixion and there's life on the other side of death when we can follow him all the way to the end. By the way, I've probably preached and so many people preach. It's so crazy how the crowd on Sunday winds up being the crowd that yells, crucify him on Friday. And I'm led to believe that actually this crowd is altogether different. This is the crowd that journeyed with him from Galilee in the north, and they had been healed by him, they had been moved by him, they had been inspired by his message of good news of the kingdom of God, and they'd followed him and they gave him the procession. And so when the crowd said, who is this? They're like, dude, this is Jesus. I met him. He saved me. He healed me. He rescued me. He's God's true king. So this crowd on Friday are the people that weren't willing to follow him when it was good. So no way are they going to follow him when it's bad. 
So of course they're going to say crucify him because he's unlike any other king that they ever expected. But God cares so much more about our formation than our expectation. And God shows us how to remake the world and it shows us what love looks like on the cross. So I want to close with this lengthy quote because I started to pull a section of it and then I teased back and said, no, I got to also add this. And I started to say, that's too long. And I said, no, I got to add this. Because if you're not here on Good Friday, and that's okay, I need to tell you about the cross. Because it's one thing to wave palm branches and celebrate and say, save us. But it's a whole other thing to see how God actually saves us. This is from Brian Zahn in his book, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. And I'm serious, if you read one book in the next month or in the next year, if you read one book this year and you haven't read this, read this. And after you've swept up the remnants of your brain that's exploded, let's have coffee and lunch and talk all about it. But this is from his book, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. And I want to say this in closing, because if you miss Good Friday, don't miss this. The cross is where God receives the most vicious blow of human sin, turns the other cheek, and forgives. The Apostle Paul tells us that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. This should not be misunderstood as God reconciling himself to the world. It wasn't God who was alienated toward the world. It was the world that was alienated toward God. Jesus didn't die on the cross to change God's mind about us. Jesus died on the cross to change our minds about God. It wasn't God who required the death of Jesus. It was humanity that cried, crucify him, crucify him. When the world says, crucify him, God says, forgive them. At the cross, we discover that the God revealed in Christ would rather die in the name of love than kill in the name of freedom. In Christianity, the supreme value is not freedom, but love. We can kill in the name of freedom, but in the name of love, we suffer and forgive. The cross is not a picture of payment. The cross is a picture of forgiveness. Good Friday is not about divine wrath. Good Friday is about divine love. Calvary is not where we see how violent God is. Calvary is where we see how violent our civilization is. The cross is not about the satisfaction of an omnipotent vengeance. The cross is about the revelation of divine mercy. In Christ, we discover a God who would rather die than kill his enemies. That's Brian Zond in Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. And if you think that, that it is about wrath and judgment, I, I would encourage you to, to search the word wrath in New Testament and find that it's not 
ever talked about when it talks about the cross. That's a theological dot that was connected years later. But when the cross is spoken of, like in 1 John 4, John says God is love. And whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. And in fact, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and he gave his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And then you see something in John 3.16 about how God so loved the world that he gave his son. There's something about the cross as a self-portrait of a self-sacrificing love that has everything to do with the heart of God who is love through and through, even in his wrath He's loving. But there's something about the cross. When you say, where is God? He's not pouring out the hot lava of his wrath on the cross. No, scripture actually teaches that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That on the hardwood of the cross, Jesus extended his arms of love so that all might come within the reach of his saving embrace. That God has but one disposition towards sinners, whether they're objects of wrath in Ephesians 2 or they're the saints in Ephesians 4. What God's single, solitary disposition to humanity is unrelenting, unquenchable love. And it's exactly why Jesus went to the cross. Not because he hated us, but because he loved us so much that he did not want eternity without us. That he loves his creation that killed his son so much that he would forgive them and bring them into a new family and show them what love and forgiveness looks like so that we can go show others who go out and make hell on earth where the life and heaven really is. That's the cross. Not God so loved you, but the cross eliminates All ifs, ands, or buts, God's single solitary disposition is love. Even when other kings come and demand your authority and allegiance or else, we pledge allegiance to the lamb who was slain, who's also the conquering king, who conquers sin, death, and evil, because he shows what true strength is, and it didn't take a war horse. It took a colt and a cross, and he's the one we follow this week and every day he has to give us. Father, we're thankful for this moment together, this time that we can hear this story and hear good news and hear a challenge to the systems of the world that show us another and alternative kingdom. We ask that we would see this portrait of Jesus that we would be moved to give our lives and allegiance to him, whether for the first time or just for the next day, that we would find you save us and help us and guide us on the way to resurrection. May we be faithful to walk with you first toward the cross. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Gracious God, as we stand at the gates of the city and prepare to walk the rest of the path toward the cross, give us grace to recognize the King we proclaim and courage to be a part of your kingdom, even when it goes against our ways and the ways of the world. 
even when it leads us where we do not want to go. Liberate us from the tempting alternatives of wealth and selfishness and status and empower us to live lives of generosity and love and humility. May our journey through this holy week with all the twists and turns that trials may bring be a road marked with grace upon grace and just enough light to lead us on the way toward resurrection. Go in peace.